0: everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now in our last episode, we got to review X-Men number 46 with uh, Tom Pyre. It's called The End of the X-Men. Uh, we saw our five heroes dealing with the death of Professor X. Uh, They fought Juggernaut in a weird fight, and then the FBI disbanded the X-Men. It was a weird story. We're not sure why the FBI is able to disband the X-Men, but our five teens have decided to scatter around the country, and we're going to get some individual-focused issues with the X-Men on various adventures. Uh, Beginning with today, uh, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 47, which is called The Warlock Wears Three Faces. It is Nonsense, <laughs> and it is from August 1968. Uh, we've got writers Gary Friedrich and Arnold Drake. I'm going to talk about Arnold Drake in just a minute, uh, with pencillers Werner Roth and Von Heck, and inks by John Tardig Cleo. Uh, we are thrilled to have uh, Seth Martell rejoining us today. Hi, Seth, how are you? I was on mute. Sorry, I'm great. Thank you. It's good to see you again, and I'm also happy to welcome Stephanie, and I'm not even going to attempt your last name for the first time, but how do, uh, what is your, how do you pronounce it. your last name?
1: Uh, Pizzarillos, just like how it's spelled. Fantastic.
0: I was sure to get it wrong, so I'm glad that I asked. Stephanie, it's so lovely to have you here, and then we, uh, our featured guest for today is uh, Mr. Philip Kennedy Johnson. How are you, Philip?
2: I'm great. It's an honor to be here. How are you guys?
0: So good, and so nice to have you here. Let me have everybody uh, introduce themselves, let everybody know where we may know you from. What are your gender pronouns? And then the introduction question today is very simply, what is uh, something unexpected that happened to you during a live performance? Uh, Let's go in the order of Stephanie, Seth, and then Philip.
1: So yes, excited to be here. My name is Stephanie Nina Pizzarillo, pronouns she, her. Um, I am a comic book and prose writer. So in the prose world, you might know me from Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, the anthology. My story in there is Jean Peacock Feathers, just won the Janus Award for 2022 at Chukataqua. I'm in, I'm, I'm in a bunch of anthologies, uh, COVID Chronicles with Seth and Aaron Guzman, Mermaids Monthly, Women in Comics, a whole bunch of fun stuff, and I'm excited to be here. And as for that question, I think the weirdest things happen to me in a live performance is I was at a high school play in the audience and two actors had their lines and they went to the side, still on stage, and they kind of started making out. The, uh, <laughs> the high school guy was a little uh, excited about his role, but what was weird about it is that the mother of the girl actress was uh, sitting to my right. And the father was to my left and he was fuming. And I was like, how is this going to go down? This is awkward. So it's probably the strangest thing that's happened.
0: Uh, The uh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Nope,
0: that, that was it. <laughs> oh, no, someone said something. Uh, so the uh, the the story Gene you wrote, uh, Stephanie, is just wonderful. And I'll post some images of the book when we release this episode. Um, but thank you for sending me a copy. I used to host a uh, a monthly live storytelling group here in Salt Lake City, kind of like the moth where people get up. And as I read your story and the other stories in your book, I just was picturing sitting in an audience and hearing you read this to me and share about your family's story uh, which which you beautifully tie into the X-Men uh, and Claremont's work with the character Jean Grey, who, of course, we love on this podcast. So just gorgeous work. I'm so happy to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much, Chad.
0: Uh, Seth, go ahead.
3: Hello, my name is Seth Martell. Pronouns he, him. I, I've done an awful lot of work with Stephanie. Appeared uh, in a bunch of anthologies with her. I have a graphic novel coming out in spring 23. Uh, is for my Question: This was a tough one. The only thing I could think of was related to this terrible issue and the terrible magic in it. I was a little (laughs) kid stuck at my dad's rotary lunch, and they had a magician come in. And I was really little, so I thought he was old, but he probably was just a teenager. And he dropped all of his magic cards behind him right in the middle of his act. And I was still standing up there trying to like interact and do all the the things you're supposed to as a kid. And he kind of made it through, but it was really sad. And when you can tell magic is sad as a kid, you know it's terrible for adults. So that's that was the best thing I could think of. Nothing terribly <laughs> awkward.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Seth is also a wonderfully talented artist. He did this mastermind and this Cafe Agogo uh, 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 pictures on my wall behind me again. I'll post some images. Um uh and uh has some great stuff coming up. Uh, <laughs> so I'm super, I'm super happy to have you here again, Seth. Thanks for coming back. Uh, and then finally, of course, uh, Mr. Philip Kennedy Johnson. Uh, let me share a little bit about my path to Philip very quickly, uh, Philip. Before you share, I read mostly everything Marvel puts out, uh, and I try to uh, I try to f- capture the feeling I get when I'm reading particular books. And you write really fucking scary books. Sometimes <laughs> uh, your your Marvel Zombies and your uh, your War Is Hell and your Empire Captain America and your uh, 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 oh goodness uh the name is out of my brain and it'll come back in like five seconds but you have a you have a a a beautiful way oh carnage of course carnage is the other one i was going to say you have a beautiful way of just telling a very slow burn scary story with lots of punches and packs um so when i was reading uh your your carnage book and you used the friends of humanity and then i went back to read your marvel zombies stuff and i was like oh this guy needs to be on the podcast sometime Uh, thanks, so I reached yes. out and I'm so happy to to have you here. Uh, let me uh, let me turn it to you for your introduction. Go ahead.
2: Oh, thanks so much for that awesome introduction. I'm just honored to be here. Um, I'm Philip Kinley Johnson, he, him, and huge pleasure to be here. I'm friends with Leah Williams, who was on here once and she spoke super highly of you guys and said the show is great and says hello. Um, we love Leah. Yeah, she's awesome. I am. Um, I was just on. So, for those who don't know, I have a my my day job. I'm a musician, and I was I was traveling, and um, I was like, she is. Uh, I think probably due to COVID, she is she moved closer to family, and um, I got to bump into her because I'm used to her being up around where I live. So, hung out, and um, yeah, and she and she mentioned you guys, so. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Also for those who just a little for background information, I totally screwed up the time zone thing today and was late and everyone else you heard from has been super lovely about it and cool. So I will now be their servant in the afterlife and I owe them some books. Um, but yeah, big vouch for their, for their character. Um, regarding, let's see. I do have quite a story, (laughs) something that happened in a live performance. I I used to play trumpet in the Glenn Miller band, Glenn Miller Orchestra. And um, there was a, so the performance was my own in which the the crazy thing happened. Um, There was this very old gentleman that I was meeting for the first time. He had been, he had sponsored concerts by the Glenn Miller band for a very long time. And he was a really interesting dude. He was, um, he just grew up in a different area. You know, he was, he came of age during, you know, the cold war and all that. And he had this whole thing about like defeating communism through swing music and everything. He was like just the biggest swing f- music fan that ever lived. And he brought the band in uh, pretty often to, um, to play. I want to say this was around, Den- I mean, we toured the whole country, but I want to say it was around Denver maybe. That was my first. I mean, the uh, our singers and our, our band leader knew the guy very well, but I, I just met him. So we were we were performing and he would always apparently lead the band on one of our big signature tunes that we did every night. I can't remember which if it was it wouldn't have been in the mood, I don't think it would have been like maybe Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand or one of the other big Glenn Miller band tunes that you hear all the time. Pennsylvania tunes, Six 5, had, <laughs> Yeah, right. He uh he so he, he'd lead the band through the tune. Um, and they would let him because he's a good friend of the band. And um, there were some time there, you know, there were these cables that wouldn't that run to the, the mics and everything. And he was out there and he was leading the band very animatedly and excitedly, and you know, doing this whole showbiz thing. And um, at some point, he got so into it that he tripped on something and fell, and busted his head on one of the the band fronts. on on one of the saxophone band fronts and was just bleeding like a son of a bitch. And this is in the middle of a live performance. Um, And he was kind of like, he he didn't want anyone to like help him. And he like this, um, everyone's like, what do we do? And he's like, keep playing. And he was so insistent that we keep going. He was like terrified that we would stop. So we kept going. And, oh, my God, was that awkward? And I was like, we, sh- we should have absolutely stopped. And I was like, we're not going to keep playing, are we? But he wanted us to, he insisted that we keep playing. And and <laughs> the, the one of the, the trom- there's a trombone solo on this tune. And Josh Stewart, the uh, trombone soloist, was, was like, what are we doing? And he again, the guy's like giving orders for us to continue. So the guy steps, so Josh steps over his body to get to the place to the microphone to play the solo. It was just the most awkward, tragic, weird thing. And at the end, like they're they're literally like carrying him out in a stretcher and he's like conducting. And it was just the weirdest, saddest thing. Um, so sorry if I uh if I went a little too hard on the answer, but, but that's no, no, I, I love, love it. In mind.
0: Uh, So lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I, uh, as I asked this question, I then thought about it and I have a shocking number of weird live performance stories, Uh, you know, uh, power outages. I was once, I I referenced how I used to do live storytelling. Uh, One time the breaker started on fire during my performance and then the lights went out. Like I've had, I've had some crazy shit happen. Uh, drunk performers on stage lots of times. But the story that comes to mind first and foremost, uh, uh, I live in Salt Lake City. My my partner and I and some friends went to see the drag queen Acid Betty perform. She's a RuPaul queen. Uh, and she comes out and she's in these giant heels and she's stomping all over the stage. And it's not the nicest club, but we're literally pressed up against the stage with, you know, mosh pit behind us. And uh, Betty walks over and she steps into a like pooled, uh, 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 a spiral of like microphone cord that's off to the side and she steps in and I see her start to move her foot and it's caught on her heel. And I'm like, Oh my God, she's going to trip. So I reach up. And I'm literally that close to the stage and I try to pull the cord off her heel, but I ended up pulling it tight as she was moving and she face planted on the stage and I ran. <laughs> so acid Betty, if you are listening to this podcast, that was my fault that day. <laughs> I was trying to help, but I'm so sorry. <laughs> so there's, There's my public admission of the time I accidentally tripped acid Betty. Uh, Okay, so let's jump into uh, our our interview today. Uh, Philip, I want to hear a little bit of your story quickly, if you don't mind sharing. Um, There are a lot of writers and creators out there, but you are the only person I can think of who is musician and veteran and father and Eisner-nominated writer all at the same time. What What a unique space you occupy. Uh, in the scheme of this crazy comic book universe we love. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into writing and comics.
2: Um, Well, um, thanks again. I, um, it was kind of by accident. I was, so I was a a trumpet player in the U.S. Army Field Band in Washington, D.C. And a job I still do for now. And um, my younger brother, when I was younger, I'd wanted to be a, a comic artist and it was a massive x-men fan although i mean when i was like when i was growing up if you weren't in the x-men you were just like human trash like you just everyone had to be reading x-men or, or <laughs> it didn't even make sense <clears throat> um it was back when like joe Mad was in his heyday and like books like you know phalanx saga and age of apocalypse and all these awesome books were coming out and yeah like friends of humanity were the bad guy like they were they will always be my like like the perfect villains. Like when I, when I, I still like, when I see this crazy political stuff happening in real life right now, I just, my, my child, my lizard brain looks at them and be like, friends of humanity. Like I recognize them as like, like those guys, you know? Um, so um. anyway, so yeah, that was, that was when I really was just loving comics more than anything. I ended up going into music i just went I, went I was looking for something to just kind of get out of where i was and i was like I, I could do i would do anything to get out And at the time i um as much as i'm one of the comic artists it seemed more plausible that i could be a musician that was the thing i was I, I judge i was better at so i did that but i had a younger brother and he ended up going the other way he was also a musician and an artist he he was a better artist and wanted to do that so years later i'm in washington dc and um I hear from my brother and he's just kind of lost it's like, i don't know, like i just want to do comics man i don't know how i don't know i just don't i don't know anything about anything i'm just stuck in the country i'm not very good at school i just want to go to art school i don't need money for it like i don't know what to do and um i was like just come even with me man we'll figure it out like we'll we'll start going to conventions we'll find a good comic shop we'll, we'll just teach ourselves how to do this i mean everyone comics are made by humans like let's figure out how it's done like it can't be that hard So we, um, so he moved in with me and we just totally did that. We started going to conventions and looking at, like found a great comic shop, which became Third Eye Comics, which is now this incredible, you know, phenom store. But At the time it was just a hole in the wall place. And, but they were already, you could already see, see they had like the love of the game and it was just awesome. Um, So yeah, we just kind of taught ourselves how to make comic books. I just wrote basically a short story and a couple of poems for him to, to illustrate and just so he'd have, you know, portfolio to speak of, um, he ended up joining the army also as an illustrator. There's a job called multimedia illustrator where they'll train you in like Adobe illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign and all the stuff that you need to know to, to do to learn how to make comics anyway. So he did all that for the army, <laughs> making graphic materials and drawing and stuff for them and got out and went to school and the GI bill, he ended up going to SCAD um, to, for comics, um, which was really, really cool. So he's out there doing it now and uh meanwhile i was just kind of looking for other artists to work with cuz i really while while he and i were kind of doing the the rounds i really got the comics bug and was, i just love the collaborative nature of it um i love the whole process i love how creative the books i was seeing i mean when i grew up i was reading you know x-men batman and, like mullet superman and, like this is <laughs> everything was so different back then and i mean there were also great indie books coming out i'm sure i didn't know about you know, Preacher, I didn't know about, I mean, all the amazing stuff that was coming out back then, Watchmen even, I just knew about superheroes, and I, I mean, I was seeing stuff on spinner racks and that was it, Um, so when I looked around, you know, in 2000, whatever it was, 2005 or something, and I'm seeing, like, you know, I, I think one of the first things that the, that the store owner turned me on to actually was, um, um, oh my God, what was it called, astonishing X-Men by Whedon and Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I remember X-Men just being my jam. So I went to that and I couldn't believe how good it looked. And then I was seeing like, I was seeing all these deconstruction of superhero kind of stories that were happening at the time, like the boys and irredeemable. And, um, then I saw American vampire and really got turned on to Scott Snyder's work. And just all these amazing, I was just, I was so impressed with the state of the art as it had, had become, um, and I just got I just completely fell in love with it. So um yeah, I that that was kind of how it got going. And I um yeah, started finding other artists to work with. And one of those I put together a few pitch packets and one of those became Last Sons of America, my first published book at Boom Studios. It was a book about uh, the for-profit adoption industry and human trafficking and and all that, something that I cared about a lot. Um, and that's kind of how I busted in. And then so I so that led to another boom book, Warlords of Appalachia. Um and Last sun has got noticed at DC and Warlord's got noticed at Marvel and started getting work there. And now I'm doing Superman and Alien and fun stuff.
0: That's such a great uh, journey into things. When I was growing up, I was an, a diehard Marvel fan, and I even worked in a comic book shop. And it wasn't until yeah, awesome. years, it wasn't until years later where I started going back and reading all the non-Marvel stuff that I missed out mm. on, Fables and Why the Last Man. And, right. And as I'm interviewing people, hearing more and more, but like, I will for sure be ordering both of the books you just mentioned. Uh, oh, thank you a, well, I, Please well, allow you me to give to you for free. <laughs> <laughs> I would be honored. I mean, I wouldn't turn that down, but I'm I'm just thrilled to support and, and read. I think you're uh, an incredible writer. And what a great story. Uh, now, I haven't read uh, Last Sons. I saw Stephanie just hold it up. Do you want to talk to... Oh, thanks. Do you want to talk to Philip about Last Sons or your experience reading it, Stephanie?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could... I just got a fangirl. I mean, just, I love your writing style. love your work. Oh, um, I you love so how you use different narrative devices um, to tell your stories. Um, yeah, that was a hard read as a mom. Um, oh, yeah. Heavy <laughs> issues um, that, that you tackle with. Can I lead in with a question, Chad? Um, yeah, yeah. On those yeah. lines? So yeah, your work tackles heavy <clears throat> themes, like I just mentioned human trafficking, domestic violence, war, politics. That's a lot of weight and a lot of mind fills to uh, kind of walk through. So, number one, why tell these stories, and how do you navigate audience reaction, if at all?
2: Um, well, thanks for reading my stuff. I appreciate it, and thanks for the question. I um, I try to tell stories about things that matter to me, and I just kind of dress them up in comic booky ways and keep them like fun and exciting and, and keep keep the pages turning. But I um, but I just for me, it can't be about It can't be about just like punching robots in the face you know it really it needs to be about something at its core um and the thing that i mean i'm sure you guys feel the same way um there are topics like or stories in you that just that just you know rip out you know just rip your mouth open just crawl out of you like i've got to get out no matter what um and that's totally how i feel about it there's things i just have to talk about um there was a time around the same time I was getting into comics, like as a, as a potential writer, um, I also discovered the issue of human trafficking. Um, And I hadn't lived in this, in an an urban area that long, but um, learning that it was a thing just completely blew my mind. And, um, I just became pretty, I just became consumed with it. I I was found, um, I was looking for the creative outlets. I was looking for other ways to spend my time and, um, because before that I had just sold my soul to practice room and had just been like, I'm going to be the greatest trumpet player ever. And that's all I care about. But then I, at some point I started trying to live more full life and um, around that time, I discovered that. So I, sp- I was just spending a lot of time doing anti-human trafficking work and um, which is unbelievably depressing and, and difficult. Yeah. Um, and around the same time, there was this, uh, there's that, that earthquake that happened in Haiti in 2010. Right. And um there was a, a a church group from the States that went down there ostensibly to get kids adopted who had lost their families, but they tried to take people out of the country. Try, they basically tried to steal kids and um, whether or not they had good intentions, that's what happened. And I just, again, I'm just, I just learned everything I could about it and the, about how the for-profit adoption industry works. And it just became this story that I just kind of had to tell in some way. and. Um, I find that subtext is the best way to do that, or to dress it up in some kind of a a genre way, so it's not just like, "Here's a big um, sermon," you know. (laughs) Like, you don't, you can't, if you just like on its face becomes this thing like, "Here's my message; you're gonna listen." It becomes kind of a drag to read, but if you can take um, just kind of a kernel of that thing and and dress it up using subtext or um, some other genre, high concept thing. It can, you can kind of trick people into caring about something like, like there's a, there's a moment in last sons in which, um, the kids like they, they go to a place called the Merc, uh, which is the Mercado the market. And, um, it's a place where you can, it's like a flea market for children. Like you go and you can, you can sell kids there. You can buy kids there. They're there. Like, you know, like furniture and, um, there's a, a place where they're they're lining them all up um, by skin tone, because that denotes value. And although I don't know of an actual market where that happens as such, um, that is how it is. I mean, if you if you've got a blonde, blue-eyed kid in a in a country in which they're like most of the kids that you're selling are darker skinned, that kid is a is a gold mine. And it's just so dark and depressing to think about. so my my way to put to address that in the book was to kind of was to um basically like try to bring some levity into it using like really fun, cool dialogue the way that Elmore Leonard does in his novels, like how his his dialogue just feels so fun to read and everyone so says such cool things. And I, I try to lighten the tone enough with the dialogue, just the vibe of the dialogue, so that people will keep reading and not just drown themselves. Because the stuff that I'm, the message I'm trying to give them is so important and so dark. I kind of try to hide it in a in a fun story about two brothers, you know. So and then Warlords of Appalachia was very much the same. That's a story about the political divisions that were happening in like in in the United States at the time, and just the, the the idea that Trump could become president was a big deal to me, and I um. Now I'm in the United States army and uh, according to the universal code of military justice, I'm not allowed to talk about my political views in public, um, but I can write a fictional comic book. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, uh, I wrote a story about um, America after the second civil war, Kentucky's become an occupied nation within us borders. <laughs> and it's just a, you're seeing this guy become the first feudal warlord of the Appalachian mountains. And this is kind of the fun, exciting concept but at its core, the question is, what if Trump becomes president? <laughs> like, what happens then? And uh, so, you know, I, I feel like it makes it potentially compelling to a reader. I hope it would to me as a reader. If I, As I was, that's kind of stuff I look for as a fan. I look for stories that mattered. Um, so it's not, again, not just about, you know, ice monsters and robots. And it has, it has to have some kind of core thing. And plus we all, I mean, not just me, all of us have, as storytellers and makers of content, we have this. Um, opportunity, in my view, a responsibility to to help change to, to win hearts and minds is try to make the world better and make people care about things. Um, and I find that subtext and kind of hiding big ideas within fun fun stories is the best way to, um, you know, kind of fool them into believing things that matter. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, So often I think we work, um, let me change my attack here. I, comic books are often about trauma. They are about characters who survive trauma, and that's one of the reasons we find them heroes. But then we add superpowers on top of it so often, right? We also have a long history of comic books tackling really tough issues. Uh, I mean, one of Marvel's very first books was Captain America punching Hitler in the face on the on the front cover, <laughs> right? And you see you see things that are products of their times. You see uh, uh, political issues uh, like protests against Vietnam or, or LGBT stuff. The friends of humanity is another great example of that, where we see small minds uh, uh, focused in a particular way as to bring up political issues. uh, But we make it about mutants instead of about race or gender or sexuality. Right. Yeah.
2: Uh, Oh my God. Mutants and and X-Men books are like the, the best example of that, of, of, uh, of, Talking about things that really matter and addressing the issue. The genre.
0: Well, the issue prior to this one that we just reviewed with Tom Pyre, there's a scene where a group of people try to lynch Iceman for being a mutant. And you're like, holy shit, man. Like, there's, there's yeah, big is. issues that are working themselves. Uh, human trafficking. I mean, this is one example, but uh, you take the character Iliana Rasputin, who you got to write in Marvel Zombies who was kidnapped as a child and raised in a demon dimension where she was kept against her will. And now she's dealing with that as a character in adulthood. It's, it's human trafficking in comic book form uh, in a, in a very strange way. So we see these very real world issues. And I think there's something so powerful about telling really strong stories uh, and doing it in such a way to capture uh, readers. Every human has been through some kind of trauma, right? And we, we have this ability to capture it, but we also wanna see people heal from it or move forward from it. Um, Seth and Nina, I, I said Nina, Seth and Stephanie, both of you in your work, I, I see you weave in those elements of, of trauma too, which is, is really beautiful and impressive, even if it's really hard to read or get through sometimes. Uh, any thoughts on that before we uh, keep going?
1: just so well done it's yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. just so well done it's uh it, it shows uh, as you're answering these questions philip it shows how much thought and heart you put into your work and my my day job is as a therapist yeah carrying oh, the wow. pain carrying the pain of people is not an easy thing to do um but yeah. help, helping people heal through story or through therapy or through writing i think is such a, a, a crucial thing um uh and yeah, this is a, a room full of people who uh care. Uh and I, I can tell that. Yeah,
2: that's yeah, that's awesome. I I um I definitely feel that responsibility with um well thanks for the work you're doing, by the way. That sounds yeah, that sounds hard. You. Um yeah, I I mean I, I take the responsibility of writing Superman very really seriously because of how much it means to people. I just I just met this guy over the weekend, uh, or last weekend, whenever I, I went to MegaCon Orlando and um a Superman fan spoke to me named Miguel um, I don't know where he's from, but he said he had, um, two open heart surgeries as a very young kid. And, um, he, um, you know, so he's, and he just couldn't do anything. He was just like laying there for however long as, as a kid it was like barely the strength to, to do it. like to sort to exist. And he, um, as he's laying there with like all that gear, just like in him and all over him. He said that he would, he just imagined Superman being inside of him and making, making him stronger. And, um, I don't know, man, it's just like, I, it just makes, it makes my eyes kind of well up when I hear stories like that. I'm like, it's the, the stuff that we can't just write stories about, you know, about robots and aliens. Like it, it needs to be about something that matters because these kids need not just kids, like we, people need just the, the fundamental, these these heroes like X-Men and Superman, Represent just this fundamental thing that people need, and it is such a responsibility that um, that we can't take for granted.
0: I mean, we're writing about robots and aliens, but we're also writing about prejudice and trauma. You know, it's exactly, uh, yeah, yeah, it's woven in. It. And we we talk endlessly on the podcast about how X Men relates to so many people because of those themes and 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 how we connect to them. Um, uh, let me ask each of you quickly, just we'll, we'll, we'll shift the conversation slightly. What was the first X-Men comic book you remember picking up and who, uh, particularly probably when you were growing up or reading, uh, in your earlier years, who was your go-to character? Who's the one you related to most? Uh, so, uh, go in the same order, Stephanie, Seth, and Philip.
1: Well, gee, I don't know. I'm just always going to say Jean Grey <laughs> and Phoenix. Like that's going to just be my answer for everything. Um, you know, I just like, I didn't realize what it was I was really liking were the female uh, characters that Chris Claremont just did so beautifully. I just growing up understood art, (laughs) right? Not understanding there were writers. It was a team. Um, But yeah, definitely the Phoenix stories. Um, Definitely if it had a love story in it. You know, I said, my brother can like Spider-Man and the robots and all that. If there was a love story, you know, I was very girly like that. So Jean Grey and Phoenix. Uh,
0: the the potential of a woman's emotions to erupt. <laughs> we talked about yes. that story a little bit. Uh, it's yes. become something else, but uh, I, I, Chris Claremont and his powerful women. Uh, we love that in the X-Men, of course. Uh, Seth, go ahead.
3: Uh, I just wanted to give Philip credit for the, the explanation of just, I, I really think it's such a awesome way to pay it forward. You know, this is something that gave us all comfort and solace as kids. And I, I really think like finding a way to tell a story that matters and is important to kids and they can, they may not really understand the subtext, but they're feeling something from it. I, I think it's a really awesome way to, to weave it together. And, um, you know, you're kind of giving back to yourself later, you know, from, <laughs> yeah. from years ago, something you got and and making making it for the next generation. Uh, which is another reason why I think I like the X-Men. It wasn't really a a single character. It was more about the fact that it was a group of misfits that came together and were making the most of everything that they had. And each of them had something special or important to give, but it wasn't always seen as that right away. They had to kind of learn it for themselves. And I thought that was a really cool um, connection that they all had.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, Except do you have you do you remember your first X-Men issue or your go-to character growing up?
3: Uh, I didn't really have a go-to character. It was really always just kind of everybody together. But um because it was more about the, the the sense of family that I really liked there. But yeah, yeah. uh yeah, my first issue was I think 254. I I really liked also uh I started the X-Men when it was like totally broken up. It was like right after Claremont just kind of blew the whole world up with Siege Perilous or that weird portal yeah, yeah. thing that made no sense to me. But <laughs> it was I think what I really enjoyed the most was it became a treasure hunt of back issues to make sense of this just like chaos of long, like a long history. And we didn't have the internet back then to actually refer to anything with you. You actually had to do investigation yourself. And I thought that was really cool.
0: We just got to have Doug Wolk on the podcast recently. And we talk about the scope of the Marvel Universe and the path that we take through it. It's a really interesting thing. Uh, uh, Philip, same question to you.
2: Um, I don't remember the issue number. I There were a couple issues I still remember very vividly as being the early ones. Um, and forgive me, I don't know the numbers, but I mean, you guys are such hardcores, you might actually know them. But there's a, there was one that showed um, a dad saying goodbye to his family and being taken away in a van. And we saw him again later as one of the phalanx. And it showed that he has signed up. It was like it was when they were they were kind of spooling up the whole Generation X crew with um, Monet and um, oh God who else was in that crew? The, the yes. kid who's Sink, Sink and skip yeah, and, and, yeah, and Ross, yeah yeah
0: yeah Jubilee yeah
2: it was it was an issue that showed them and um, or that the the thing with that little intro might have actually been an earlier issue and then we see the guy again later as like Harvest whatever his name was as the big the big burly yeah yeah. Thing. But at the time, um, again, it kind of just struck me as um it was like this guy thinks he's like what's what's he doing? Like this, I mean I was used to the concept of an alien, like, you know, like you know, body snatching or like, you know, the guy going away on you know, on purpose to turn into a monster for whatever reason. I was like, this guy thinks he's the good guy. Um and that was just kind of just a profane idea that suddenly made comics more complicated and more interesting to me um so i'll never forget that but then also around that same time like when the phalanx saga was like in full swing um i remember um banshee showing up he'd been you know off-site for however long i don't know what he's doing before that but he showed up at the the x mansion to find everything all weird and everyone there had been assimilated and they were he was he was speaking to members of the phalanx who were impersonating x-men but he didn't know that yet and he's going around and like he, he goes into the communications room and Beast has completely stripped it all down. And he's like, Whoa, what are you doing in here? He's like, Oh, I'm just making some little little adjustments. And it's like Phalanx Beast and they're talking. So I um Banshee, they were making Banshee feel like such an outsider. uh Banshee felt like such an outsider before he realized what was happening. Um, and he the fact that he was alone, he was doing all this alone for whatever reason made me really connect with Banshee. And um his outfit was kind of silly and his powers or whatever, but like, for, but the, the way that his character, what, like his character though, like who he actually was and um, his whole thing, like being the, the previous generation guy talking to the newbies or just being like not one of the core team. Um, that was something I related to. And um, I just really liked Banshee. And even after, even after that, when uh, some of the other characters that were, that were like sexier were around, I still kind of, looked for banshee and i was like oh i wonder what banshee's up to because they for what because of that first story that he was in i for whatever reason i really connected to him and really liked him i got but, um i got banshee is, my wall
0: back there too
2: oh nice yeah yeah, he's yeah as, i mean and then later on i you know not to jump on the bandwagon because everyone loves logan but I, I i do like logan a lot probably my favorite iteration of logan is this old man logan i really like that book
0: that's a great book
2: uh, but back in the day it was it was banshee for whatever reason
0: uh, I love I love the way your brain is looking for these political themes through all these stories. Instead <laughs> standing out. I love it a lot. Uh, and the X-Men has a lot of that. So you're too focused uh, and you have an impressive career uh, and you're doing a lot of incredible things. But you're too focused uh, X books, if they are X adjacent at the very least. Uh, we have Carnage Forever. You got to write the Alpha and Omega specials in which we see. I I can say it. I'm not in the military. We see kind of a Trumpy, small minded group of people who are surrounding themselves by a particular agenda. So in the comics back in the 90s, when you and I were reading as kids, we got to see the Friends of Humanity, which is the group organized by Graydon Creed, who is the human Mm -hmm. son of Mystique and Sabretooth. Uh, Graydon's running for president and he has this kind of group of bigots who are constantly attacking mutants and you get to see this group come back uh uh in your carnage run and then the leader of them end up getting the power of a symbiote, which is uh, seems to be a little bit like that story of the the scary guy getting the power uh which uh I, again I, i'm sure you have to be careful with your words as you as you answer that. but uh what made you decide to bring this group back this uh this iconic human group of villains
2: um because it's happening in real life (laughs) um this was all coming together let's see did it happen did i write this after january 6th i'm trying to think of how this all came together i think i did um yeah no i totally did because there was a (laughs) initially that thing that happens at the end that's in the stadium um oh yeah 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 that stadium was all added after the fact (laughs) that was that stadium was covering up art of like the washington monument um behind the scenes information there like that was it was an unapologetic uh rally on capital steps and then carner starts killing everyone <laughs> um they were like we might i i after everything i just said about like not trying not to be too on the nose that was probably a little bit inartistically done um and plus and people in the office were like yo we have to like we can't be Quite so clear what you're saying here. like, all right, fine.
0: Light, life imitates art, imitates life, and sometimes a little too closely.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was, I, yeah, I let my, I let my my rage get a hold of me that time, and I was, I was too on the nose with it. So we, uh, we, we changed it. But, um, um, yeah, I guess I've answered that question. <laughs> that's yeah, what, so, that's where, that's what I was thinking when I wrote that. It was pretty, I don't know. It's like the stuff that was happening then was so, is, is such an existential threat. To everything America is, I guess I, uh, I took it pretty personally. So I, um, and here's the thing, like I've seen a lot of carnage stories. Um, and a lot of them can be, I mean, it's super fun. I like carnage, but it's all, it, it, you kind of know what to expect, you know, like you, it's a kind of a one-dimensional thing. It's just like the, the biggest psycho symbiote you can imagine um and that's kind of the gig um but i was like well we can't just do that again like we've already we've already got these we got absolute carnage we got all these other versions of the Carnage story where he just goes nuts and kills everyone um and i'm kind of interested in that like what if we so i so i pitched them carnage or the symbiotes meet the Manchurian candidate is how i pitched it and they were like that sounds dope let's do it so it, it became this thing where um he like carnage. Cause as we, as we have left him in previous books, he was basically gone. Like we last time, last thing we had seen is him attached to like a, a fish in the ocean or something. So I kind of started, I had this idea for um, the opening in which we would see him working his way up the food chain, like from a, he grabs a fish and then he, he's just like little tendrils in the ocean and then he grabs a fish. And then that fish kind of like torpedoes into a shark and it becomes a shark and the shark uh hits this, this boat of pirates, like Somali pirates, and he they take one of them. And the, you see the pirate like walking out of the ocean, and you see him um talking to like he he approaches uh this warlord and his whole like little militia, and there's a CIA guy there who's like supporting this group. And so he he takes the warlord, he takes the CIA guy, he's on a plane back to the states, and, and now he's he's headed for like the White House, you know, like. He's just be he's working his way up the food chain until he can do the most damage, you know. So that was kind of the idea, seeing him work his way up the food chain until he's in a place where he can do the most damage. And um, and yeah, just given what was happening at the time, the friends of humanity were front and center in my mind. Um, I mean, Nazis are nature's perfect villain, right? Better better than than robots or zombies or anything like you know. Nazis are perfect. I love talking about Nazis when we can, especially now that they're a thing Um, again. So um, it was just, again, it was just a story that's kind of like ripped me open and just had to be told. And so I use Carnage as uh, as the canvas.
0: You write very effective horror, like uh, that slow burn, very scary. And then there'll be a page turn and something giant, creepy, bloody, horrible happens. Uh, You get to carry that theme over. I mean, your alien work is amazing. But your love of X-Men shows up most for me in your Marvel Zombies Resurrection series. So there's two volumes. We got a single issue followed by a four-issue series. And there's a ton of X-Men work in it, including including Wolverine being kept by the zombies as a food source as they slowly eat off of him and he and he uh, <laughs> he regenerates or heals uh, we get to see magic as a zombie in control of limbo which is like the home of all the zombies we get to see uh nana the sentinel who I loved and I don't like sentinels uh
2: oh, yeah we sent the nana
0: yeah, we even get to see uh, a dismembered uh, a night crawler zombie teleporting around and eating people, like some really scary shit in there, man. And your love of the X Men really showed up in that series. Uh, do you want to tell us? Uh, we don't have a ton of time, but do you want to tell us a little bit about your your work with
2: Marvel Zombies? Uh, I was a huge honor to write that book, and I'm glad my love for the X Men comes through. There's um the X Men. I mean, I just love X Men so much as a, as a kid, and and I continue to and um it's still kind of like a like a bucket list thing I would love to write x-men but honestly the stories like almost like all my queer friends who ever read a comic love Mm x-men and that just really stood out to me like how much that book means to that community and um I'm not sure I am the one to write it right now I feel like the people that they have taking, taking that, taking the reins on that book are the ones that should be doing it. I feel like they're, they're telling stories that really matter to them, that matter to the community. I mean, Steve Orlando is a dear friend. I wrote a, I co-wrote a book with him. Um, Leah's friend, of course, I know Vita really well, like all all those, those people just, they know what the fuck they're doing and they have, like, they know their, their, their readership. And I, those, I trust them more than I trust myself with that, with those books. Well, movie I, movie, I love that movie there's movie a diverse
0: movies. line of presenters and a diverse line of books, but I'd say there's still room. You're pretty good at what you do.
2: <laughs> well, thanks. I, I was certainly not saying no to an X-Men book, but it was to get to do a Marvel zombies resurrection thing. I um, So they, 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 wanted to do that book. That all kind of, that call kind of spooled out of uh, Kirkman kind of surprising everyone with ending walking dead. Uh, that was, he didn't announce it. It was just like, boom, I'm doing it. And then they called like that day, I think. And they were like, Hey, we want to do a Marvel zombies reboot. You want to do it? I'm like, well, that depends because I um I mean, obviously at the time it would have been by far my biggest work at Marvel. I think this is before Captain America. I got all I'd done, I think, is that war is hell issue. And I mean, I wasn't in a place to say no, but I did say um the the campy take that that Kirkman did, where it's just like a fun zombie romp where they're just eating eating each other and cracking jokes. I'm like, that's kind of not what I want to do. could we do like a totally different thing? And they're like, What are you thinking? I'm like, Well, I'm thinking like the road. <laughs> and they're like yeah let's do it so they let me do uh that that initial introductory issue where it's basically like cameron's aliens where they they go up there and find the thing and they're looking around and then everything all hell breaks loose and we see how they lose their their a-team how the marvel universe loses all of its heaviest hitters at once and then they come back to earth and then we see this big time jump and we see what earth has become um and that's where we got to get our get our road story where we have our our crew of survivors from from the marvel universe and um give them a mission to kind of get them back in the saddle they've kind of forgotten how to be heroes they're trying to survive like everyone else and then they find something and then suddenly they get a chance to be heroes again um i just something about like a back in the saddle book that really speaks to me i just really love those like unforgiven that kind of thing i just love that that's not that's not exactly what um, resurrection is, but I knew I wanted to like, you know, like we've established here. I don't want to just tell a story about that dumb shit. that doesn't matter. I want it to be something that it can be fun. It can still be super fun. Um, but it also needs to be something that, that matters to me that we're trying a story that we're trying to tell for a reason.
0: Well, and the road, the road is about this father, son post dystopian. And I'm looking now at Marvel, Marvel zombies and your father, son was Spider-Man and Franklin Richards, which I'm now realizing yeah. as, I, as I go back and think about it, you also get to work in some of your crazy X-Men knowledge with, uh, there's, there's like a society of non-organics uh, where we see yeah. Nimrod and we see people using the transmode virus as a protection against the zombies. It's really great work and it, it captures the scope of a ton of areas of of Marvel, but it felt like an X-Men Spider-Man book to me more than anything. And yeah. I'm
2: so glad. It's great. Started, it's really great. Uh, yeah, I Yeah, I want it to be, I want it to feel like an X-Men book. I wasn't even really thinking about that though. I was just thinking like, I, this is where my mind went. Um, But I, yeah, I like the idea that I want. I really. I wanted to see these corners of the of the Marvel universe, but it did. now, now that you're saying that, it, it did kind of revolve around the X Men. I wanted to see the the X Mansion, and um, like how I just basically I was thinking about all these different corners of the Marvel universe. Like, how would that be affected by the world being wiped out by zombies? Like, it, my the world builder in me kind of took over and be like, I want to see the mutants. I want to see the phalanx. I want to see the um some remnant of the avengers i want to see you know atlantis and whatever else like the limbo all these different things how would these things fit together like what would what would the survivors be and the survivors would be the like in one of the things in the original um marvel zombies thing that i did like was how we saw machine man and how he was it, it made a lot of sense that he would be a survivor yeah yeah and so I wanted like, let's it's t- let's, let's spool that out further. It's like the, all the, the, uh, non-organics who they call, uh, Enos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted them to, to be, you know, prominent to have like their own little, little culture or place. Like, and and then the, that kind of changes what phalanx could be like now phalanx could be like an actual, it's like, you know, like using, um, using, uh, you know, one, um, Oh, God, what was it called? The cowpox or something? There was some, there was some other disease that they used as an inoculation against smallpox or something back in the day. That's kind of what I was thinking of for this. I was like, they give people the, uh, the transmode virus to prevent them from becoming zombies. I'm like, yeah, damn, yeah. that's dark, but let's do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're right. It's, it was definitely an X Men book. And I wasn't thinking about it that way at the time. That's just where my mind went because I just, I just love those books. And so this so Sp- Spider Man being the hero. Um, happened in part because one of their very few rules might've even been the only rule. And this came from like the, the mouse there, they, they said uh, you can't make Spider-Man a zombie. That's the only rule we've got. We don't want to, we don't want any memes out there with Spider-Man as a zombie. He has to live. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so, and if you look at the cup, the original cover that Inhuk Lee did for the thing where you see Wolverine and Deadpool and somebody else like looking one way and kind of shrieking, um that deadpool was spider-man initially and when he when they he sent in that cover they're like nope and they, they changed spider-man to deadpool because they just don't want any images they want their boy protected um so so spider-man was the leader which also i liked which was cool i mean i think it, originally it was going to be somebody else but i liked i made a very different so that we could see spider-man in that context
0: you still got to make mary jane a zombie yeah exactly so uh, as we're wrapping up this portion this podcast has become a lot of different things number one we're interviewing professionals obviously it's a it's a space for social justice and hard (laughs) conversations and then it's a place to nerd out over old books together right and in recent episodes we've gotten to explore the x-men as babies and the x-men as apes and now the (laughs) x-men as zombies there's a whole multiverse out there (laughs) with it With everything you can imagine. Uh, As we're wrapping up the first part of this conversation, uh, Seth or Stephanie, any other questions or comments you wanted to uh, uh, direct toward Philip before we
3: move forward?
1: I just want to fangirl again. um, Absolute perfection. Superman, the one who fell. I love the narrative device you use of Superman writing a letter. Uh, to his son. I love me my those captions. It so affectionately reminded me of the one DC comic I have up on my wall. I'm sorry. I grew up a Marvel girl. There's no disc. No, it was cool. <laughs> it's just, I grew up a Marvel girl, but uh, Supergirl 80 written by um, totally like David. Oh my God. I, of course, I know da- David, Peter? Peter. Oh my God. Peter
2: David, probably. Peter
1: David. Thank you. <laughs> totally blanks because I'm fangirling you, but Oh. The issue that she uses a letter to say goodbye, I believe that was the final issue of Supergirl, but just really beautiful themes of that golden age as you explored, where as a as a child, you see your parent as immortal, and when the time comes for you to learn that, they are not. So, fan yeah.
2: <laughs> Oh, well, Thanks so much. I look forward to reading your work.
3: Yeah, I also just want to give you a lot of credit for so I was a makeup artist at a haunted house for seven years so I got a lot of really bad zombie comics as gifts and they're usually (laughs) terrible because they're just all gimmick based you know it's just pure gimmick and your story wasn't really a zombie story it was really a, a tale of survival and I thought it was interesting and it was fun in a way because I am such a Marvel fan that they were all fun characters to kind of explore what happened to them. But I really think that it was such a good book because they could just be humans that you're reading about, and you were still invested in the story. And I, I thought that was a really great way to take a step back and how you can judge how good the storytelling is.
2: Oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate that.
0: Well, look at all these big fans of yours, Philip. Oh. <laughs> uh, so let's with that. Let's transition into our issue for today, which will have some lighter <laughs> content. Kinda. Let's we talk have about a, something terrible now. Oh, we have a very, <laughs> we have a very rapey supervillain. Now, if you go back and listen to our episode on X Men number thirty, which we did with Adam Gorham, we see this character, the Warlock, who becomes the Mahayogi here.
2: I oh, think dude, you had Adam Gorham on here. That is awesome. Yeah, he's so great.
0: Yeah, uh, we. Uh, I, I think this character is my least favorite X Men villain out of all of the villains possible, which is saying something. I really hate this guy, (laughs) we'll talk about him. Uh, I wanna give a little bit of history really quickly. Uh, Arnold Drake takes over the X-Men in this issue. Uh, We've had Gary Friedrich writing for the last four issues. It's a very short run. Let me talk about Arnold Drake just a little bit. He lived from 1921 to 2007, died at the age of 83. Uh, He grew up Jewish in New York City. Uh, When he was 12, he had the scarlet fever and he told this story a lot when he was alive. He was stuck in bed and just started drawing. And and that became a love of storytelling over time. When he was older, he befriended the Batman creator, Bob Kane, uh, which led him to starting a, a career at DC Comics. And during his time there, he founded a team called Doom Patrol, which a lot of people know it's super famous. Now, Doom Patrol, uh, we're going to do a focused episode about the Doom Patrol X-Men controversy in the near future with Susanna Polo, which I'm really excited about. But uh, just just to give this very similar, uh, team was launched around the same time as the X-Men. Uh, the X-Men fought the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Doom Patrol fought the Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, both teams had uh, a group of misfits led by a guy in a wheelchair. There's some kind of eerie similarities and Arnold Drake used to be very outspoken about how the X-Men might be a ripoff from the Doom Patrol, which was a really interesting thing. Uh, but right around this time in X-Men 47, Marvel hired him and he wrote the X-Men and a bunch of other stuff for Marvel for a while. We're going to see him as the featured writer on the book from this issue, number 47, all the way through 54. He's the creator of characters like Mesmero and Lorna Dane, who becomes Polaris, and Havoc, Alex Summers, who we a lot of people love. Uh, so we're going to be talking a lot about him in the coming weeks. Uh, so as we start this, uh, let's hear everybody's thoughts on the cover of this issue. We we have our blurb of the X-Men featuring, which is a thing running in the books at this time. Uh, and then we see the Beast and Iceman underneath. We see uh, Iceman kind of in the forefront, creating a big ice shield as the... Uh, garishly dressed maha yogi blasts him with magic and beast is swinging in on on the infamous tarzan rope which always comes from the background uh, underneath it says the mystery of the maha yogi uh what are your thoughts on this cover before we uh delve into the book any thoughts do you like it do you hate it
3: <laughs> it's fine
1: yeah it, <laughs> it works uh, right yeah it shows You're what the, the shows what the book is <laughs> yep yeah,
3: at the time, it could be way worse. <laughs> it's true. So, it's got, you know, it's got some triangle composition to it. It moves your eye across it. It's it's okay. Hmm.
0: I can't exactly say what they were trying to do with this character, but the uh, a, a yogi is a character or, or a, a, a religious station in a lot of Indian or Buddhist religions. Uh, we see a lot of stuff over the years in comics where they're trying to draw upon, uh, you know, tribal customs or racial customs or or religious customs from other countries, and then they turn it into villains or characters. So this is kind of an example of that. And the appropriation is a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, before we even open the book, I'll remind you very briefly, this character, the warlock or the mahayogi, here is from uh, King Arthurian times. Uh, he was initially kind of touted as a Merlin-like villain. He had a nonsense battle with Thor, and then a nonsense battle with the X-Men. And here he is trying to reinvent himself uh, by becoming some sort of mind-controlling shaman in Greenwich Village. And we'll we'll talk <laughs> we'll talk about it. Uh, so as we're jumping into the book, Stephanie, will you take the first five pages for us? Uh, tell us what happens, and we'll we'll take some time to talk about it for a minute.
1: Sure. So we'll start with the first page. We have a very unusual trademarked line X Men, the most unusual fighting team of all time. <laughs> I find it fascinating that that's been trademarked. Um, and I, I thought the other, uh, I thought this was like a subtitle The Warlock Wears Three Faces, because we got a title on the cover. Um, but in any case, um, I think this references the Mahayogis, the Warlock, and Merlin, right? The three. Yeah, yeah those would be the three faces. So it opens up with lots of thought balloons. Um, We get a recap of the last issue. Um, Professor X has died. And the FBI, being on point to what they do, has ordered the X-Men to disband because that's what we do when we have marginalized groups fighting against oppression, right? The FBI (laughs) has to break them up. So on point. (laughs) And we have a very sad... um, uh, uh, Hank, um, Beast, and Iceman with their hands in the pockets, looking quite defeated and sad, and um, remembering the X Men all suited up. This is the past. We're not fighting anymore. Um, and we have uh, 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 Hank here thinking, uh, you know, everyone's going through their fe- feelings, basically. We have Stan Lee's um, famous for, this, for the 1960s uh, breaking the fourth wall caption where he hypes up the issue, what's going to happen next, talking directly to um, the readers. And that big arrow is right over Iceman's crotch, which then (laughs) points to (laughs) the credits, which um, read like they're taken out of, they're just full of alliteration. So it kind of reads out of a 1960s. I don't know if any of you read these, the Sesame Street Encyclopedia, when you teach kids about the letter S. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the credits read. But yeah, that's the first page, just going through the feelings of the X-Men being um, disbanded. Um, Any thoughts on that page before I go?
0: Well, let's have you summarize all five and then we'll come back and share thoughts. Ah, okay. So that's how I'm
1: going to do it. All right. All right. So I'll keep going and you, you just chime in. So moving on to the second page, I forgot to mention, and this is kind of, this is why, you know, despite all these things, I did enjoy this issue for what it was. They're walking around New York. They're being New Yorkers. I love walking around New York. And that's what they're doing. So they're thinking, they're thinking, um, Iceman kind of having a more innocent view of why the FBI might've disbanded them. Like maybe, maybe we'll be safer, but, but, uh, Beast is like, nah, I think this is to hunt us down. Um, and as we see, they're getting ready to meet some dates. Now, where are my notes? I'm look- I'm reading it and looking at my notes. Um, and in the fourth panel, this will be very important regarding how these guys view their lady dates. So we'll get back to that when you guys... Um, uh, because when you guys review those panels, because I think we have Iceman saying saying something along the lines of, or Hank being kind of romantic, we have like our grand ladies to court. (laughs) And Iceman is like, eh, it's just Vera and Zelda. So we'll get back to how women are (laughs) viewed and and all that later on. Um, Then we cut to the actual theater where we get our first uh, look at the Mahayogi um, and giving us a little background. We're in the East Village Theater. Uh, audience members are enthralled. Uh, the Mahayogi kind of sounds like Darth Vader in this last panel of like tap into your inner darkness or whatever. Basically hypnotizing everyone. Um, the third page. Oh wait, I have to say on the second page, I will note the word ectoplasmic. I am like, as a teenager, I would look for good SAT words in my X-Men comics because of course words like that would be on the SATs and that's why I scored low on the SATs because telekinesis and ectoplasmic are not, but there's a fun word in there. All right, moving on to the third page. Um, we have Iceman um, getting told that the show is sold out. So, these, the uh, Iceman and uh, I'm going to keep saying Bobby, Iceman, and Hank Beast, um, they actually had tickets to see the, the Mahayogi. And I will note this is on point to the 1960s revival of, the, of uh, interest Western interest in Eastern spirituality, but also mentalists were a big thing. So, it was cool to go out and see uh, a mentalist back then. But tickets have been sold out. Um, and, uh, Iceman's date, I believe this is Zelda, right? Zelda, is- yeah.
0: She's Iceman's beard in the Vera. 60s and I love her. Iceman's with Zelda and Beast is with Vera.
1: Okay. I'll probably keep messing that up. You could always correct me, but he's getting a little marriage lesson. Um, she's cutting him down. Like maybe you should have been, maybe you should have gotten some, uh, reservations beforehand, um, <laughs> because the tickets are sold out. So they decide to go to Cafe Gogo. And while they're walking there, we go back to the theater and we see the Mahayogi um, hypnotizing the crowd um, and getting ready for them to be slaves um, uh, or sleeper slaves for for when he's ready to do his evil thing.
0: Yeah. So his plot here seems to be: I'm going to be I'm going to put on public shows. Anyone who comes to my show. I'm gonna take over their minds or plant some sort of post-hypnotic suggestion. And later, when I wanna rise to power, I'm gonna call everyone who's seen my shows and form an army, which is just such a stupid plot. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: it's mentalism, right? (laughs) It's on point, it's on point. And wait, I forgot to mention the epic line that you guys gave me to review here. When Iceman cannot get tickets, he makes the note. I don't even know what this means. The Maha Yogi is a real oriental ozone, a gas, lass. I have no idea what that is. I do know we don't (laughs) use that term anymore. But I don't know what an oriental ozone is, but that's what I said.
0: I mean, ozone seems to imply atmosphere, and he's touting himself as someone who is a yogi. So I think think it's just that... Yeah, I think that's where they're going with it.
2: I think he's trying to say he wanted to, he wanted to say he's a gas with and like use the alliteration that's everywhere in this issue. Right, so like he just he says the word ozone. It's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we're back at the theater, we're on the fourth page now, and uh, the audience is um, leaving the theater now, totally unsuspecting and unknowing that they have this little seed planted in them to be the Mahayogi's mental slaves. Um, and then we cut to Cafe Agogo, um, where um, <laughs> Iceman and Beast are with their dates, and an interesting uh, panel where we have a guy reading poetry about kumquats <laughs> and then we see a girl in fishnets i don't know what's going on here <laughs> poetry <laughs> club. go go club kumquats I, I i don't but hank does not kind of, like
0: <laughs> it's like the hippie beatnik thing right like uh that, that was happening in the city at the time
1: all right um <laughs> hank is not a fan makes a comment about the poetry and gets whacked by um, someone who looks like uh, Floyd Pepper from Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. I don't know if you guys know that Muppet. I'm sorry, I like Sesame Street and the Muppets too much, but like a hippie. And like if you look, like the guy next to him is the same exact guy except with different clothing. Like it's it's hilarious. <laughs> and they start a fight. And it becomes uh, again as a New Yorker I can appreciate this you uptown versus downtown beef like again these are the little things of this comic I can appreciate, and we see um, beast and Iceman like mm, you know our secret identities, what are we going to do here, so it gets uh, if we go to the my final page page five. it they keep hitting them um at this point. Uh, They remind me, no, not at this panel. I'll tell you who else they remind me of. Um, They decide they got to do something about this. Iceman zaps the electrical board to turn off the lights. One of my favorite lines, one of the hippies says, man, Like, who turned off the sun? The lights go out. And then a fight breaks out. You see Beast uh, hauling one of the the hippie folks uh, in the air. And then in this last panel, these guys remind me of, what's his name? Little Jerry and the Monotones from the Telephone Rock. Again, Muppets. Oh,
0: wow. (laughs) That's a cool man.
1: (laughs) I told you I had to do homework for this episode, Chad. Um, (laughs) I mean, really funny looking guys. I think they're supposed to be hippies. I think for me, um, maybe Seth as an illustrator, you could chime in. One at one point, one has a purple boot, one is per, one is uh green, and I think that's supposed to be how your feet look under ice because iceman has now frozen their feet to the floor, and maybe that's like what your feet look like under ice, but it kind of
2: <laughs> somebody has not had her feet frozen often enough. <laughs> Obviously, your feet turn, your left foot turns green, as everyone knows.
0: <laughs> now, the cafe, the Cafe Go Go, is a place that is referenced a lot in the '60s books. Stanley introduces it. The X Men go there to hang out often. Uh, Zelda is a barista there. Vera is a librarian who dates Beast off and on. Uh, Angel brings his girlfriend Candy Southern in sometimes. They've had, uh, they listened to Bernard the Poet and they've had all this nonsense happen to them there. They've been attacked by a motorcycle gang there. They've had all these crazy things. So this is just the latest thing. It's their little favorite. It's the Friends Central Perk, except for the X-Men. Um, <laughs> this is the last issue of the 60s books where we see the Cafe a Gogo, And it's the last issue of the 60s books where we see Vera and Zelda. And I'll talk more about them in a minute. But they've been recurring characters through the book for, for yeah, years this date, at this point.
1: This date didn't work out. Makes sense that they never appeared after this.
0: I love them and Seth uh I, I recently uh, had a uh, a ceremony to celebrate my wedding to my husband and Seth drew me Vera and Zelda uh, at the cafe agogo uh, uh, <laughs> as a wedding gift which was the loveliest thing Seth thank you so much I love it. Uh, so Seth let me have you take the next five pages and then we'll, we'll kind of break this apart a little bit afterward
3: sure so those angry beatniks mean hippies are ice to the ground and Hank throws one of them who doesn't take off his sunglasses, even though it's now dark inside, takes them out like bowling pins makes a great little joke. And one of those dudes who just got tossed had a chain in his pocket, a big gold chain hidden in his pocket this whole time. So he whips it out, makes a really great pun because there are so many bad puns in this issue and uh, starts throwing it around because that's what you do. You start throwing a, a chain around in the dark in a crowded cafe, because that's that's how you in, in, uh, start a fight back then. Um, Let's so see Bobby, how you dig
0: this little chain reaction.
3: Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> that's rough. And I mean, Bobby makes a little that was rough anchor Moby Dick harpoon joke too, where he takes him out with a nice harpoon, smacks him in the head. Dude loses his glasses, and just like the old Batman TV show, all the action happens in the dark with sound effects. So the artist got, got away with absolutely no real work in that that panel, taking out three to four guys. So it was a real quick fight. And uh, that's that's how they get out of it. They they fight in the dark, nobody knows about it. And uh, then you get to the next page. On page seven, you get actually a, a pretty well-drawn little exit scene. Um, sometimes, uh, it's a Don Heck, right? Like sometimes he's he does some really nice work. And sometimes it's, ridiculous. It's like he just kind of rushes through some stuff and then he kind of focuses a little bit and it gets kind of nice again. But um well, this is one of the few issues Don Heck did the layouts and then Werner Roth did the finishes. Yeah. You know, I think that's what it is. I think some of like some of the, you know, angles are really cool based on the layouts and then some of the sometimes Werner Roth just took his time with them and sometimes he just kind of rushed over them. Yeah, fair. Uh so on page 7, we're back to the two dumbest girls in all comics because somehow the entire fight happened and they're like, "Where were you the whole time? They couldn't really see." And they just sat there waiting while a giant fight happened for their boyfriends to come back and escort them out. So they go back to the box office and somehow magically they had a cancellation for four and Zelda's jealous because Bobby's getting flirted with, but he got the ticket. So she should stop complaining.
0: Can Can I comment very briefly before they leave, they say, where were you? And they said, we had a very important meeting under a table. And then the other girl says, it seems like you two are always under a table which Iceland is gay and we think Beast is bisexual and that is it's just hilarious.
3: <laughs> uh, just it's also crazy that they just sat at the table waiting for their boys who just disappeared too. Like <laughs> they were under the table the whole time. It's fine. Sure. <laughs> oh, also when they get seated Beast calls his girlfriend a wondrous wench which is just Dude.
2: A- yeah. It's like one of my least favorite lines in any comic and this is the 60s i mean
3: it's like, alliteration but damn was, dude. That, was that cool back then
2: i don't know man
1: i mean it, it can be affectionate i don't but.
2: wondrous wench <laughs> yeah i
0: don't know dude beast is called gina wench in the comics before too back then it's yeah it's it's not a
3: term he should be using it's <laughs> rough well must have been all right back then there's a lot that was okay back then
2: i guess i don't know i i i question that i wonder if that's okay really
3: I mean, you know, it was for 13-year-olds. They didn't know any better. So I just hope they didn't call anybody that after, you know? Well, but also yeah.
0: written by grown men. <laughs> right. okay. yeah.
3: yeah, actually, I wonder how old were, was the author at this time, you know?
0: Oh, uh, I just looked it up. He was born in 1924. This was in 68. So he's in his late 40s. Yeah, he's, wow.
2: Cool. Yeah. Okay. Almost my exact age. He, well, he. try harder, guy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So I think I do, it's
1: on point for Beast. I think for the for Beast, he can get away with it. We wouldn't use it now.
3: Yeah, he's stumbled around a lot. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, we're we're back and seeing the, the Mahayogi and on the stage, and they, you know they, they did pack a lot on the stage. And mahayogi's on on stage trying to get ready. He's getting ready to hypnotize everybody. And because Beast and Iceman are prepared by seeing him, they <laughs> make the most nonsensical plot. Whole that I don't understand at all, but they provided defenses against his massive hypnosis. I don't know how they did it. I guess Professor Rex prepared them for it with their brain, but they don't have any mental power, so I have no idea how they did
0: it. I mean, we have evidence in the comics later of you're, you're able to fortify your defenses against telepaths or hide things, uh, but I don't, I, I don't think that's the writer's intent here. <laughs> just I think they had a chance to get themselves ready. Is all he's saying? They just close their eyes real quick. <laughs>
3: And so they they uh, run off panel to go change into their costumes, which is revealed on the next page. And as close to instantly as you can get, I don't know why they had to say that to you, but they've flipped around and now they're, I, I think that they have to have a lead into a change scene with, sorry, lead into like a scene change where all of a sudden they're in costume. So that's their little, little text box there. So now they're ready to fight him on page eight. So, part of what i don't understand chad maybe you can explain it to me because i just don't know enough about this character what are his powers they're like everything
0: yeah he's got some magic shit he's got an artifact on his head that seems to be expanding his powers but mostly what we see him doing here is just using his mind to make them do you take make off his head then
2: <laughs> That's the yeah, you know, later on it makes it sound like <laughs> it was all just for show he takes his hat off and it's like nothing
0: yeah well, he he has this like pendant that he tosses at beast in a little while we're gonna see or this little amulet on his head. But yeah, he's just messing with their brains is basically what happens. it's it's a creepier version of Professor X like guiding them through telepathic shit, uh, just making them think certain things are happening to them when they're not. That's that yeah, seems to be his power.
3: Here. Here. It's it's bizarre. I like that he glues in the next panel, he glues beast to the floor, but then flips up the floorboards just to extra fuck with them. Because what could be more confusing that you're attached to the floor, but then the floor comes with you. But just well, and on the,
0: and on the next page, he makes Iceman think he's being like frozen in a snowstorm, right? Like uh <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's Iceman distracts him. I guess he's distractible magic. So like once he doesn't notice what's going on. He, like the the other person can recover for a quick second, so yeah. Then he, Iceman gets his attention, but he turns his attention onto Iceman in the next panel, and he decides that he's Iceman with his own brain has now. Uh, I just don't understand it. He throws an imaginary snowstorm at him, and now Bobby, who's normally completely in control of all ice and snow at all time, is absolutely convinced he's going to die from his own snow. And he's going to just lose it, gonna drown in snow. And uh I, I don't quite understand that logic in Bobby's head, but Bobby's young and dumb and like I guess that we're just gonna go with it.
0: Yeah, I get it. I think it just messed with his reality, messed with his his thought perception.
1: Well, he's used to ice, so he's like, Why is it soft now? It's snow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so I was like Oh, I know. Oh it's an ice storm. It's so cold. Is this a problem? <laughs> like of all the people to attack with ice, this I'm not the, I'm not the guy.
3: I know. There's no way I can survive. I'm being smothered yeah. by my own imagination. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, really yeah, it's nonsense. It really yeah. is.
3: It's great, but that's okay. Because yet again, Beast comes in and uh, comes in with the rabbit punch. I always love how they announce what they're doing at the time. Comes in, kicks him in the head and distracts him. So, Bobby can writhe off panel with imaginary snow for a minute, which I wish that they just showed him like kind of floundering <laughs> off panel in the background somewhere. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then uh, as he's about to wind up for the big knockout punch for, for the warlock, the warlock takes a, takes a beat makes eye contact and makes beast on the next page, convinced that he's just a limp rag doll and then starts slapping him all around. So he slaps Beast here, slaps Beast there, and about four panels of slapping him. Then again, this is where I'm so confused over what he can do. He makes then real sandbags fall from the ceiling onto Beast.
0: Yeah, maybe he had like a trap set in advance. Uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to recount it here, but this guy's appeared twice before. And this out of his three appearances makes the most sense. Uh, <laughs> okay. He... In his yes. first appearance in X Men, he kidnaps Jean Grey and takes her to like an underground fortress that he's built. And like, is like, you will be my queen. It's like super rapey. Uh, he's he's nonsense. This character is the worst. I
2: hate
3: him. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Philip, if you want to write a story with the Warlock, like, he can just do whatever you need for your plot at any time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on that.
3: <laughs> this guy, he, he's he's yeah. got all the powers, all of them.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's he's good. Uh, all right, Philip, so
3: my- my panel's over with beast getting hit with punch sandbags. Yeah. And then
2: Philip,
0: do you want to take us through the last five and then we'll talk about this whole sequence?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just, it's just more fighting. I mean, the, uh, beast somehow turns it around. I guess it's just time for him turned around. So he, uh, he stands up and flexes and all the, the, the sandbags go everywhere. And he's like, Oh God, it's not possible. My sandbags. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Iceman starts zapping stuff and making things blow up. Um, and he, uh, rather than like, you know, exploding glass or whatever, his ears hurt. The bad guy's ears hurt. And so he's, he's annoyed by that. And um, that seems to be the ticket. So they, um, anyway, so he doesn't like the loud noises. He takes the thing off his head. He's like, I never needed this and he throws throws the jewel at at Iceman and Iceman makes a big you know these ice shields
3: oh Philip this page I can interrupt for a sec this reminds me please please, anytime. earlier all of these sound effects did you get to write your own sound effects sound effects for the carnage series because there were some really great sound effects in that
2: oh thank you yes yeah it's it's yeah you should write your own sound effects sometimes in the um in the first draft of of a script before there's any art I'll just I'll put in brackets like you know, I'll, like SFX colon, just like the little abbreviation for sound effects in, uh, in brackets, I'll have like appropriate to, to action or something because I don't want to, because if, I, if I'm not uh, micromanaging exactly what's happening, if there's, if I'm, if I'm describing a fight scene, be like the friends of humanity douchebags are fighting, or fighting off the, um, the, the symbiotes or whatever's happening. I'm not necessarily writing, um, the symbiote is slashing through the guy's legs or anything so specific, it's more like, here's what's happening with these characters, here's what's happening with these characters. And then when it gets drawn, sometimes it will be a little different than I envisioned. So I'll save the sound effects until the lettering pass. So I'll I'll write out um, in brackets, some vague thing. And then when the art is there, then I'll I'll apply a sound effect to whatever's on, on the panel. Um, and that's what I do usually with those. <coughs>
3: Oh, that's and, cool uh, I, I was really curious i'm sorry for the sidebar but no it, please
2: dude, it's, it's, it's welcome it. i don't I, I this is hard this comic is hard to talk about man <laughs> At least me, it's like it's such not good um but i do have some thought we can talk about craft a little bit when this is done and talk about yeah, problems i yeah. have with it and think ways in which the the medium has come forward not that you guys need my help for that i mean no all, no
0: i would love to hear your thoughts and that's one of the questions I yeah.
2: um so then there's, I mean, also, I mean, there are moments in which it seems like they're trying to emulate the artist, trying to emulate Kirby with the, the extreme, you know, like we've all seen the, the image of like Thor or Captain America or whatever, where it's so dynamic where it's like you're something's coming at the screen. So you've got one hand that's super huge and one is much smaller. And like just the Kirby is so like the, the perspective is so extreme and dynamic and crazy. Um, just really fun to look at. And sometimes they try to emulate that in other comics less effectively, like in, um, Page 12, panel one there, I get the impression that's what he's trying to do with Iceman, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. And and um, the bad guy looks super huge. And, and just, I don't know, it's stuff like that. Like, I can, see, I can see what they're trying to do. But very often, these comics were getting knocked out, like, really fast. And it comes through in the writing, too. It seems like it seems su- super clear that none of this was getting edited. It was just writing down whatever Whatever random sentences they thought of, and they just kind of, they just kind of sent it.
0: And God, there is a lot of yellow and green in this book.
2: <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, that's that's happening here. You get some of the, um, this last panel on page twelve was to me kind of made me think of the old Doctor Strange books. I had a uh, my uh, most of the stuff, my most of the exposure to comics that I had as a kid was um, my dad would come up with these boxes of old ripped up comics from like flea markets or garage sales. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of X-Men until later. And I was buying, X-Men were some of the first books I was buying with my own money. So w- whenever I was reading the really bad old books, most of those for me were DC. Um, but they, I did have a bunch of Spider-Man team-ups though. And those were, I think most of those were probably a little later than this, but I had some from around this time. And, um, and they were, uh, I had some Dr. Strange stuff. And it like the, the way they use circles here uh, made me think of the um, the Doctor Strange stuff. Those were like or anytime anyone is half unconscious, <laughs> they had these big circles that overlap and make different colors in between and everything. Uh, so that, that this is a this is a big callback to a lot of those other those other Marvel books that I had.
3: I mean, to be fair, as an artist, it's a really cheap and easy way to use a compass to fill up a, pa- a panel without having to do any work. Totally, <laughs> yeah. no, I
2: get it. <laughs> Um, and then here's some, let's see, so page 13, people are starting to wake up from the uh, from the hypnotism. They're like, oh, it's the good guys. Go get him. And, um, you know, they're doing their thing. A beast covers up the bad guy with a tarp or a curtain. Um, and he's like, what's happening? I can't see. And Iceman takes the thing, like, takes the tape recorder that he was using and Turns it up super duper loud because we've established that the guy doesn't like loud noise and uh sticks it under the, under the curtain with him. And that that does the trick. He's like, I can't, I can't take it. I tap he he taps out because it's too loud, and um he uh it just breaks his brain. And, I just you know, I want to read
0: this panel. The, it says the clangorous cacophony tears at the master villain's reeling wits, like remorselessly scraping fingers of steel. Good lord.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah he really he's really happy that <laughs> i think he, they're really trying to sell it like the idea that so it's too loud so he gives up and they're like yeah but we can sell it we'll sell it
0: <laughs> and despite all the mutant powers they defeat him with a curtain and a speaker yes exactly yep
1: loud yep. oh, noise messes up meditation i mean that's just the bottom <laughs> line here
2: that yeah you
0: can't scree- concentrate scree
1: scree scree anything that does scree yeah those are the sound effects that are used for those right <laughs>
2: Yeah. Can't concentrate. It's super annoying. So he throws, he literally throws up his arms (laughs) and lock me up anything. I'll do anything to stop this loud noise. Um, then the cops come, uh, let's see. Then they're like, I guess we can go back to our secret identities again now. they're like, yeah. Oh. And then beast does something like, we got to get back to our dates before they realize they don't need us. (laughs) I love that part. Um, They're like, what's he say? Two certain members of the feminine species uh, might possibly conclude that they can do without us very well uh, if we do not speed within eyeball distance of them, post-haste. Obese. Yep. (laughs) So they come out and they're sad and they have no idea where their boyfriends went. Um, And then they show up and they're like, hey, we're back. Everything's fine. Please forgive us. And they're like, no way, man, we're good. You guys should go off on a safari someplace, and they're like, "Hey, shouldn't find too hard. Shouldn't be too hard to find dates to this awesome place." And they're like, "Well, never mind. Everything is forgiven because we want to go so bad." And um then they go off and have a date someplace else.
0: Well, they um, there. Yeah, they're supposed. To, okay. He says, "Let's go to the Copacabana," but then they just take him back to the same fucking coffee shop. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Holds up. <laughs> They're broke. They're broke asses. So, like, maybe you should be going out with Angel. That's, like, lesson number one if you want to go to the Copa.
2: Right.
1: But we got to talk about the sugar and spice line. I mean, that's, Oh, yes,
2: yes. (laughs) And remind me, where is it? They're
1: so forgiving. I think that's... um...
2: Oh, right. There Women
1: bless their second panel. Women bless their gentle souls are so understanding, full of sugar and spice and everything nice and forgiving too, especially forgiving. You could do anything to us, right? Like (laughs) we'll forgive you. All
2: right. (laughs) No. Pretty rough. Pretty
0: rough. So the next time we see Vera and Zelda, John Byrne goes in the much later, uh, tells stories set in the original X-Men continuity and in the book called X-Men The Hidden Years. And we get to see Vera and Zelda there again, but this is Zelda's second to last appearance. After this, she shows up in the hidden years once and we've never seen her again. Vera gets romantically connected to the character, the mimic after this. And we see her show up in the Incredible Hulk and then in X factor. Uh, She's been around a little bit in the comics but this is her last appearance in the X-Men proper title. Uh, I love them both. Vera in particular is my favorite. Uh, So we're sad to see them go. Uh, The Mahayogi never shows up in the X-Men books again as well. The Merlin Warlock guy. uh, We see him in Marvel Chiller's number one next, which is in 1975. Then he's in The Incredible Hulk. He's had a smattering of appearances over the years. Most recently, he was used in Peter David's uh, Genus Vell Captain Marvel series back in 2001. Uh, So this is a guy that shows up once in a while over the years. Uh, ultimately, and, and Philip, I'll explain this to you since we just met, the, This we, we're mostly doing this podcast because most people who love the X-Men have never read the old books. And some of them are sheer nonsense, and some of them have uh, a lot of punch, uh, punch that they pack or, or a lot of longevity. Uh, what were your kind of overall impressions reading this storyline? Uh, when we connected you to this book, by the way, it wasn't like, oh, I've got to have Philip on this episode with the Mahayogi. It just was a goodness of timing. <laughs> this was the next one. But what were your overall impressions or uh or any thoughts you wanted to share just on the experience of reading this old book?
2: Um well, it's it's interesting to me, because I mean, all you know, all of us love, love these these properties, these characters. And sometimes it's interesting to see how I mean the way I get the impression that when these books were made, the companies were just shitting them out yeah and just they needed somebody to write them like real real quick, draw them real quick. A lot of things that we put a lot of care into now' were clearly not being thought about then like i i mean i I'm kind of a dialogue snob like I just really hang on every word and make sure every word is the one that I want to use and I try to keep it as concise i, I i'm kind of afraid of i i tend to overwrite sometimes and i whenever I'm revising my own stuff before I send it in i'm I'm making it as concise as I can trying to trying to make sure I'm not using a single word that I don't have to use because I don't want to cover up any more of the art than I have to um so it's all about being I mean comics is all about being concise um just brevity and um that's something I struggle with sometimes I still try to sometimes I still come at it from a angle of a prose writer I'm still overwriting, and so I try to struggle I constantly have like less 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 and uh, a lot of these lines that are in this are just kind of throwaway lines that didn't need to be there. And it was just, um, it's just a different time, you know, it's different time. The, the whole style uh, of writing these things is so different. The way they use alliteration everywhere in here is just kind of for a gag. There's no reason to. It's just, that was just the vibe of the book, you know. Um, the panel layouts, I get the impression there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's just, they just kind of did whatever. And they, um, I mean, kind of the rule of thumb in, with writing comics is that if you, if there's an action-heavy page, it should have fewer panels. It should have fewer words, and that's not what we see here. Like there, there's some very action-heavy pages that have five, six, like tons of panels, um, and there seems to not be much. Like um, I didn't really, I couldn't really tell what their guiding light was as far as number of panels. They just kind of did whatever. Um, if they had a page with six panels that needed to be action heavy they just they just crammed the action in the tiny little corner of it or just left stuff out or did the the sound effects in the dark thing like seth was talking about um yeah it just seemed like it was done very very quickly and um there were a lot of a lot of things that are hard to read now they're kind of cringy going back to that that old time and again you're, it's a time capsule i get it you're, uh, you're seeing stuff that uh, that was written so long ago we can't judge it under the same lens as we would judge a modern book but um it just feels like a very quick work that was regarded more um and again it's being printed on newsprint you know it's just, it felt like it was something that you just saw as like a um like a like a comic strip you <clears throat> you'd breeze over in the newspaper in between things that actually matter but you know you just fill the whole book with those you know like it just it just felt like a kind of a throwaway. Gag kind of a story. What so I, I love about
0: this 100%. issue, if I had to if I had to redeem it for anything, we get a beast and Iceman buddy adventure. The X-Men have just, yep. just ended. We get the return of their girlfriends and the fact that they keep sneaking away and the girls keep hanging out anyway is kind of hilarious. They take this one-off villain that they fought once before and they get to kick his ass one more time. Uh, it, it, it's fun, uh, it's ridiculous, but ultimately, yeah, nonsense is the way that I would describe a lot of this stuff. Uh, Seth and Stephanie, as we're as we're wrapping up the, the first part uh uh of this issue, any any thoughts or what sticks with you? What what are you
3: carrying away from it?
1: Wanna go first, Seth? Go ahead.
3: Oh, I don't have an awful lot to say. It just, I mean, it makes sense. It's like, it's the era of, you know, Bewitched and, uh, you know, Green Acres. Like, it's, everything was kind of silly, quick, and disposable back then for, for comedy and entertainment. You know, it just, it makes sense, especially if it was for a younger audience. So, you know, I think we're judging it a little harshly because we're very lucky that the medium has become more thoughtful, but Back then this was probably just like the height of exactly what it was supposed to be. Well, and we're
0: used to the X-Men being good. This book's not good. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. No, I think I think Seth nailed it. Like was being um silly, quick, disposable, like that's what it was meant to meant to be, is what it was meant to, does what it's meant to do. Yeah, I don't mean to sound like I don't mean to be so rough on it, but yeah, you're Seth's totally right. It, oh, we're rough matter. on these we're it rough on bad. these books <laughs> all the time. You're good. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think it was it was on point to the nineteen sixties. You know, the whole mentalist Eastern spirituality, there was a, a, a cartoon series in the 60s, CMDF, combined miniature defense force, and there was like the one character, he didn't have a real first name, everyone else who was white had a friend. But he he was called Guru Um, and he was master of mysterious powers. You know, Um, I mean, you just find these characters in that timeline and you just read the comic for that time period. I mean, I got a kick out of the gender dynamics. I think it was funny. And as a New Yorker, it was very, fascinating because this was a time where the Copacabana, that was the place. That was the place going to the East Village, the Copacabana, you know, so I could appreciate that as a New Yorker.
3: Stephanie, did you notice the last, like, quick slide on Brooklyn in there, too?
1: Oh, yeah, you see? It has it all. Yeah. It has it all.
3: She's like, you might find some dumb girls out in Brooklyn, but not us. That's
0: <laughs> nice. right, I
1: forgot about that.
0: Stephanie, I'm a little bit heartbroken. Jean Grey wasn't in this issue for you. We'll have to have you back on a Jean, on a Jean episode sometime.
1: <laughs> Let me tell you, that was the first thing <laughs> when I said, so like, really? He gave me this issue? I got to see her in a thought ball oh, balloon. So at least I got that. But yes, I will take
0: you up on that offer. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll reach out. Let me summarize the last five pages very quickly. We see Arnold Drake telling a story with Werner Roth and John Verporten, uh, Joe Rosen on letters. Uh, we uh, we get to explore Iceman's powers. We just finished this the, the three-parter about Iceman's origins. Uh, it's There's some cute things in here. Iceman's talking to the reader, breaking the fourth wall the whole time, cracking tons of little puns. Uh, on the first page, it's presenting I, the Iceman. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen and regular readers, permit me to hip you to the inside story of my sub-zero existence. Uh, Sure, it can be cold as a pawnbroker's heart, frozen as a bill collector's smile, hard as an algebra end term, and yet it has its good points too. For example, I can cream you with a snowball in July. you got to admit there's something to be said for that after you get the snow out of your mouth. Now, there's something deeply sexually uncomfortable about that whole speech. <laughs> we'll just let you take it for what you will, uh, but uh, it's it's ultimately we get to see five pages of Iceman kind of using his powers in different ways. Nothing really stands out as amazing here, except there's a lot of great Iceman shots altogether. If you're an Iceman fan, it's fun to go back and read this all in a row. Iceman's using his ice slides. We get to see him hitting people with barrages of snowballs and ice balls. Uh, There's ice boomerangs and ice walls and ice ladders and a mountain of ice. Uh, We do get one thing that's kind of surprising. It's never been stated in the comics before that Iceman draws his powers from the moisture in the air and solidifies it into ice form. This is an omega level mutant. uh, So we get to see uh, kind of the way his powers work and we get to see some of the really incredible potential. It even shows him very specifically surviving in like a desert climate. I can still take water out of the cactus and still use it for my powers. Uh, my favorite panel in this last five page backup is the Iceman human torch fight. We've seen them team up a couple times. I think they have a crush on each other. <laughs> so they are zapping around each other in the air which is really cute. Uh, but it's kind of a fun, silly, uh, silly story. Uh, on the very last panel, Iceman's like, I wonder what my powers would be like in space, uh, which uh, we've seen that explored in the recent Marauders comics, uh, uh, which is kind of fun actually. Uh, Any thoughts on this five page backup with Iceman and his powers? What do you love about his powers? Uh, Was there anything surprising for you here?
1: I'm just gonna say don't be drinking any drinks he makes at his party because you don't know where he got that moisture to make those ice cubes. That's like the first thing, um, and secondly, um, for any uh, writer of X Men, I don't know if this is in the new one, but like you can actually work in space, Iceman, because haha, Steph, I'm bringing up black holes. <laughs> there is a black hole in the Lynx constellation that actually feeds off of uh, water. There's like it's just eating water. So there is your next Iceman in space comic. Fantastic. I thought it was fun to learn about him.
2: Um, Philip, th- go ahead. I, th- I thought it was. I liked this more than the than the than the main story, and it it felt like um, I mean, it's clearly just a, like a showcase about like, did you know about Iceman? You know, and it kind of almost like a like a little thing you'd read on the back of an action figure box or something. Like it was like here's all the cool shit he can do, and it just seemed to have like this the fact that there's like a mission statement to it, even though it's very you know, I could just, I could imagine myself being a kid and reading this and being like, this is awesome. You know, just seeing him do different things with his powers and just getting a little, getting a little kind of how-to thing about, about Iceman and what he can do. Uh, it would, it would make me want to to buy an Iceman toy if I was a child, you know, it just kind of had a purpose and I appreciated that. It was cool to see him just showcase his powers basically. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, fun. It fun. Uh, Seth, any thoughts?
3: No, it was just like, you know, quick Iceman stats. But just like Philip said, I think if I was a kid, I probably would have really enjoyed this part.
0: At the very end, it says next, the origin of the angel. But in the next issue, we actually get to see Beast showcase his powers instead. So we're going through, we're going through a period of time in the books here where everything's very disjointed. There's a lot of weird stuff. The next issue, which is all about Cyclops and Jean Grey in Jean's very brief modeling career and Cyclops working as a radio DJ, it's fantastic. But it ends with a, a a thing that says in the next issue, you'll see them face, Beast and Iceman face Metaxo the Lava Man. And then that never happens. But in 1994, Kurt Busiek wrote a story in Marvel Holiday Special, where he went back in time and told the story of Beast and Iceman fighting Metaxo the Lava Man. So we get to see this story like 26 years later, which is actually going to be the next episode of Grey Malkin Lane. We have Annalise Bisa coming on and Connor Goldsmith and Sarah Century, and we're going to talk about... The Matoxo the Lava Man battle from the holiday special in 1994, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, as we're wrapping up, I'll have each of you do the same, but you can find Gray Malkin Lane uh, on on Instagram under that name or on Twitter, just under Graham Malkin P, P like podcast. Where can everybody find each of you? And if there's anything you can announce, recognizing this episode comes out in late June, what do we have to look forward to coming out from each of you if you can talk about it? So let's go in the same order, Stephanie, Seth, and then Philip.
1: Sure, you can find me on Twitter. I am Zoe Health, Z-O-E Health. Instagram, I am the Nina Galaxy. My website is Stephanie Nina I bet you you can't spell that. So try to find me on social media first. Um, yeah, and in June, I'm moving into art book territory. I am going to be actually launching my um, own imprint, Janice Point Press. So I'm going to be releasing uh, this year a few art books, prose. Actually, Seth is working on my first one with me um comics fun stuff uh commissioned art pieces we'll see where this takes us but i'm really excited about it janice Point press
0: wonderful uh seth
3: so yeah you can find me on social media at uh, sc martell uh, especially on twitter um i stupidly forgot to ask if i can announce my graphic novel that's coming out next year so i cannot yet but um yeah stay tuned something will be coming out in spring 23.
2: And Philip. Um, I have a website, philipkennedyjohnson.com, two L's and Philip. I'm on Twitter um, at Philip K. Johnson. I'm on Facebook under my full name. I'm on Instagram under my full name with underscores. Um, Action Comics is ongoing. Um, this September, we're wrapping up War World Saga with War World Apocalypse. Um, Action Comics is ongoing. Alien is going to be ongoing. We are... Um, relaunching alien with a new number one in let's see September and that's ongoing with Julius Ota as the new artist. Let's see, uh, a new James Bond series, 007 and dynamite comics, uh, starts in August. That's been really fun and offers, um, kind of a fun challenge kind of along the lines that we, that we're talking about here, <laughs> like taking a, taking a character that was originally written in the, uh, you know, like in the fifties and, um, You know, keeping him true to himself in a 21st century book has been really, really fun and challenging. And I get to write some spycraft and it's been really, really cool. Um, I think that's all I can announce as far as June, but it's been a huge honor to be on here. Thanks for having me and I hope to come back.
0: Philip, I want to take a time machine back. Uh, to that day, your brother said, "Do you think we could write comics and give you a glimpse at 2022 when you were writing James Bond, Superman, and Alien all at the same time?" And that's really fucking amazing, man. I'm I'm super, I'm super pleased to get to know you, uh, and I'm really impressed by your talent. Uh, so thank you, thank you for the honor of having you here and sharing your time. Oh with man, it's
2: been, an honor is mine, and uh, thanks again for your patience getting me on here. And, oh no, we're so good. And, and... Great to meet all of you and can't wait to see all your work. Yeah,
0: uh, and Stephanie, you are uh, just a breath of fresh air. Uh, what a light, what a joy. I can't wait to have you back on. I'm glad to have a new friend. And Seth, thank you for uh, rejoining us. You know what a huge fan I am of your artwork. Uh, I, my favorite thing is getting to create these little groups of people who've never met and just nerd out together and just enjoy. So thank you all for the, the gift of your time and talents today. You too, Chad. Yeah. All right, we'll wrap up there. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malcolm Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor and love into this podcast and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here. And I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at graymalkinp, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Graham Alkin Lane.